All right, well, good morning, church. Hey, can we give the worship band a round of applause? That was awesome, right? Man, uh, the, uh, Leanne, the, the girl who was singing at the end, we were at church, but she took us to church, okay? It was, <laughs> that, was, that was no joke. Uh, I wanted to keep that going, but we can't do that. So uh, just, just wanted to shout out the, the worship team. Listen, for those of you who uh, are new here, my name is Will Franco. I'm one of the pastors here, one of the teaching pastors here at the church. I serve up at our Tri-Village Church campus in Streamwood. I'm here usually about once a month, and so it's a blessing to be with you here this morning. And if you're new here, here's what we want you to know, exactly what the video said. We, we are so glad you are here. We are so glad you are visiting us this morning. We started this church for people just like you. So regardless of where you are in your journey, we want you to know that we are glad you're here and there's a place for you at Wheaton Bible Church. Now, if you are new here, then you probably have no idea that we are in the tail end of a series entitled Explore God. And what we've been doing in this series is essentially what the name implies. For seven weeks, we have been uh, asking and answering questions concerning the person and nature of God. And this week, we have arrived at the sixth question of the seven questions. And the, the question that I hope to answer this morning is this. Is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? Uh, Pastor Hannibal and I, who he's one of the teaching pastors here at the church, we were in my office this week and we were discussing the fact that this probably should have been the first question that we addressed in this series. And here's why. Because of, of all the questions that we've answered, we've answered all those questions using the Bible. And so if at any point you didn't think the Bible was reliable, using the Bible to argue for those questions wouldn't have been very helpful. So we actually felt that this should have been the first question, but we're not the ones that created the series. It's, it was created by someone else. Um, and so, but, but, so we were just saying how important this question is, that in many ways it should have been the, the first question, the foundational question for the entire series. And so this is the, the, the question that I'm hoping to answer uh, this morning. Is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? And the way that I hope to answer this question uh, this morning uh, is I want to answer this question in three parts. There's a three-part answer to this question. Here are the three answers uh, for this question. I want to begin this morning by looking at the claims of the Bible. Then after looking at the claims of the Bible, I want to look at the proofs for the Bible. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the subject of the Bible. So the claims, the proofs, and the subject. All right. So this morning, I want to begin by looking at the claims of the Bible. And here, here's what I mean by the claims of the Bible. As we determine whether or not the Bible is reliable, I want to begin by looking at what the Bible says about itself. I want to begin by looking at what the Bible claims about itself. Now, here's why this point is important. Here's why I think it's important for us to start here. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't think the Bible is reliable or you doubt that it's the Word of God, you might be bothered by the fact that I'm going to use the Bible to prove the Bible, right? But here's why I think this first point is, is important. It might not be the strongest point, but here's why I believe it's a necessary point. Because if the Bible never claimed to be reliable, then it would be foolish for me to try to prove that it is. Does that make sense? If the Bible never claimed to be the Word of God, then it would be foolish for me to try to prove that it is the Word of God. And so the reason why I want to begin by addressing and reading some of the claims that the Bible makes is because I want to show you that part of the reason why we are arguing that the Bible is reliable is because the Bible claims to be reliable. The part of the reason why we are arguing that the Bible is the Word of God is because the Bible claims to be 
the word of God. And so what I want to do in this first point, we're going to move fairly quickly in this first point, is I just want to read to you some of the passages in the Bible that describe to us uh, what the Bible is, is about and what the Bible is like. So what I want to do is I'm going to begin with some Old Testament passages, and then we're going to move into the New Testament. This first one comes from Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11. Here's what it says. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, listen to this, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. Okay. I don't know. I think that's the end of that. Okay. And then, so is that the end? Oh, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So in the Old Testament, you see the prophet Isaiah, one of the prophets of God, describing God, the, the word of God, as, as a, a type of book that whatever goes out from it will always accomplish a purpose. There's, when the Bible, the word of God is preached, even if you leave here this morning and you don't necessarily agree with everything I say, the word of God will do something because the word of God always does something. Okay? Look what it says in Isaiah 40. It says, the grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. Verse 8. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So we see the Old Testament describing to us the word of God. But I think that my favorite passage about the word of God in the Old Testament comes from Psalm 19. Look what it says in Psalm 19, 7 through 9. It says that the law of the Lord is what? Okay, okay, it's a little early, it's snowy outside, so I'm going to give you some grace, okay. Uh, at my church, there's a lot of participation, so let's, let's act like we're, we're alive, okay. So uh, the law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Perfect. Refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are what? Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are what? Giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are? Giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are? And all of them are righteous. And so when you see the words that are being used here to describe the word of God, what we see is that the word of God the, the Bible claims to be the word of God. The Bible claims to be reliable. And so the reason why we are even making this argument this morning is because of the claims that the Bible makes about itself. But it's not just in the Old Testament. Look what it says in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3. It says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Go back to the previous slide for me for a second. It says that all scripture is God breathed. I want to camp here for a second because that phrase, God breathed, is very important. Okay, here's why that phrase is so important. Because it doesn't say that all scripture is dictated by God. It says that all scripture is God breathed. Another word for it, another theological term for it is all scripture is inspired by God. That's what God breathed means in Greek. It means inspiration. Now, now why is that so important? Because what a lot of people think is that when the Bible was written, God took over human beings and put them like in a trance. And, and, and he, he forced them to grab a pen and write down exactly what he said. But that's not, that's not actually what scripture tells us. It says that the Bible is the inspired word 
of God. It's not dictation. It's inspired. And one of the passages that I think clarifies this idea of God brief is the next passage I want to show you from 1 Peter. Look what it says in 1 Peter 1. It says, above all, so Peter's talking to these, to these people, these, these Christians, and he's explaining to them how the Bible came about. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Listen to this. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this verse so important? Well, when you combine it with the previous passage that we looked at, here's what inspiration means. Like I said, inspiration doesn't mean that God just took over people and, and literally made them just robots and say, hey, write down exactly what I say, right? Just grab a pen and start writing. That's not what inspiration is. He says that it, it, it wasn't because, it's not the origin of human will. It was written by human hands, but it wasn't the origin of human will. But these prophets, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's what's so fascinating about this phrase, carried along. There's another place in the Bible where that phrase is used, and it's in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, here's what's going on. Uh, there's a, well, let me explain what the book of Acts is for those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible. The book of Acts is a collection of stories about the, the followers of Jesus after Jesus ascended into heaven. Okay? And there's a, towards the tail end of the book of Acts, there's a story where there's a, there's a boat that, that Paul is on. And there's a, a really, really bad storm. And the storm is so powerful that it takes the boat and they can't even control the boat anymore. Literally, the, the, the wind from the storm takes the, 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 the boat and leads them to a place they weren't planning on going. The Greek word that's used there to describe what the wind did to the boat is the same Greek word that's used here. That boat was carried along by the wind, and it's the same Greek word that is used here. They, these people, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, so the image I want you to have as, as, as you think about the inspiration of Scripture is individuals, like boats, so Peter is a boat, right? He has a sail. The Holy Spirit, the wind of the Holy Spirit comes along and carries him along. So, so as Peter writes scripture, he, his personality is coming out, but it's the, Bible, the God that's speaking through him. That's why when you look at the Bible, you read Paul and you can tell that it's Paul's writing because you see his personality. You look at Peter and you can tell it's Peter's personality, right? Regardless of where you are in scripture, you see the person's personality in how they write. But what you see is that it's God the Holy Spirit literally coming alongside them, empowering them like, like winds in the sail of a boat, carrying them along. And so the messengers are different, but the message is the same. Let me say it again. What we see in Scripture is that the messengers are different, but the message is always the same. It's not dictation. It's inspiration. Okay. Then look what it says in, uh, in Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2. This is Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. And he says, we also thank God continually. Listen to this. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, he says, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. Which is indeed at work in you who Believe. So what we see is that the Bible claims to be the word of God. The Bible claims to be reliable. 
Look what uh, the, uh, this, uh, this famous Christian author that died a few, uh, a few years ago, uh, Chuck Colson, look what he says. He says, the Bible's power rests upon the fact that it is the reliable, errorless, and infallible word of God. He argues that that's where the power comes from. It is reliable, errorless, and infallible. It's the word of God, he says. Then here's what the president of Dallas Seminary, his, uh, his name, you'll see it at the end. I can't think of it right now. But it says, it says the Bible, listen to this, the Bible is God's declaratory revelation to man. It says this, containing the great truths about God, about man, about history, about salvation. His name's Charles Wolver. You see, I knew. I knew it was coming up. And about prophecy that God wanted us to know. The Bible could be trusted. Listen to this. I love this last sentence. The Bible could be trusted just as much as if God had taken the pen and written the words himself. Okay. So the Bible claims to be reliable. The Bible claims to be the word of God. Listen, again, if you're sitting here and you don't believe that the Bible is God's word, you're, you're struggling with this point because you're like, it's circular reasoning. You're using the Bible to prove the Bible. But like I said, I, it's an important point because I want you to know that the reason why I'm arguing for the reliability of Scripture is because Scripture argues for the reliability of Scripture. That's what the Bible says. So in light of this first point, here is the application that I have for you this morning. If you're sitting here this morning and you have yet to uh, believe that the Bible is reliable, you're struggling with it and you don't really know where you're at. If that's you, we're so glad you're here, right? And you're still, you're still figuring out if Christianity is for you or not. Here's what I would challenge you to do. I would challenge you to read the Bible for yourself. So, so don't take uh, uh, YouTube's word for it. Don't take your favorite politician's word for it. Don't take your favorite celebrity's word for it. I would, I would, I would challenge you. Here's my challenge for you. I would challenge you to read the word of God yourself. And you could start in the New Testament, any of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You could read all four of them if you want. But I would challenge you. That would be my challenge to you. If you do nothing else as a result of this message, I would challenge you to read the Bible for yourself. You know why I think it's important for you to read the Bible for yourself? Because this morning, I, I don't believe just in the inerrancy of Scripture, which means Scripture it contains no errors. Right? I don't just believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I don't just believe in the inspiration of Scripture that is God's word. But I also believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And here's what I mean. The Bible can defend itself. The Bible doesn't need me to defend it. Charles Spurgeon says that the Bible is like a caged lion. And all you have to do is open up the cage and it can defend itself. That's what the Bible is. And so even though I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and even though I believe in the, the, the inspiration of Scripture, I also believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And I promise you that if you read the Bible by yourself with no one else there, with no one else to influence you, you will see there is something different about this book. Amen? That's actually what happened to me. I, I didn't grow up in church. And so in the, in, the, in the Catholic tradition that I grew up in, we were never really encouraged to read the Bible by ourselves. And so when I started going to church, I was only going to church because I was pursuing my, my, my wife, who's not my wife, but I was pursuing her. It had nothing to do with Jesus at all. I was, I was focusing on something else, right? Uh, and, but when I, when I got there, one of the things that started affecting me, though, is the, the pastor of the youth group challenged me to read the Bible. And all of a sudden, I started reading the Bible, and I started reading about this Jesus, and I, I thought I knew who Jesus was. And then all of a sudden, I started reading the Bible, and I'm like, wait a second. I had this picture of who Jesus was, that he was super religious and super legalistic and, and just super annoying, right, and, 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 and just the type of guy you didn't want anything to do with. 
right? And then all of a sudden I start reading about Jesus and in many ways he's just like me. I couldn't stand religious people and neither could he. He couldn't stand religious people. He was at all the parties with the pimps and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. I mean, those are the type of parties I go to. And I remember being a non-Christian and being like, no one ever told me about this guy. I had no idea that Jesus was that cool. But it's because I started to read the Bible by myself. I didn't take someone else's word for it. I read the Bible and I let the Bible speak for itself. I opened up the cage and the lion came out. Okay? And so that's what I would challenge you to do this morning. Even if you forget everything else I say, I would challenge you to read the Bible for yourself. Let the Bible speak to you personally. Okay? So the first thing we see here this morning in, 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 our, in our desire to answer this question, the first part of the answer uh, is the Bible, to the question, is the Bible reliable, is looking at the claims of the Bible. What I want to do now during this second point is I want to look at the proofs for the Bible. Now, this first point, like I already admitted, was a very internal argument. I was using the Bible to prove the Bible. But what I want to do during this second, in the second point is I want to use more of an external argument. I want to use things that are on the outside that prove that the Bible is reliable. Okay? Now, one of the ways that I want to do that is by explaining to you that the Bible is unique and different from any other religious book. Now, before I give you some of the statistics and facts concerning the Bible, here's what I need you to do. Let me give you two examples of, of religious books. And then once I give you those examples, you're going to see just how different the Bible is from any other religious book. Okay? The first example I want to give you is the Quran, the, the, the Muslim holy book. Right? The, the, the Quran, here's what's fascinating about the Quran. The Quran is a book that was written by a few Muslim scholars that were in the in, in, in community with Muhammad, who is the founder of Islam. So Muhammad gets this vision from God, and he's the only person that got the vision. He's the only person that got the information. And then he didn't write, actually, he didn't write the Quran because he, he wasn't illiterate. And so he, so he actually had people around him who wrote down what he was dictating to them. Okay? The Quran took about 23 years to create. From the moment it was started to the moment it was done, it took about 20 Three years to finish. That's the Quran. Another example I want to give you is I want to give you the example of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon was written by Joseph Smith and another co-author, which I can't think of his name right now, but, but there are these two guys, right? Joseph Smith and a co-author. Joseph Smith goes into a, into a cave. He gets a vision from God. He comes out of that cave and he writes the Book of Mormon. Now, unlike the Quran that took 23 years to write, it literally took about 80 days to write the Book of Mormon, according to scholars. About 80 days the Book of Mormon was started and finished. But in both cases, it was one individual that received a word from God, and then people wrote down what they saw and heard from the deity. In both cases. Okay? But here's the thing. Usually, when people think of the Bible, they think of the same thing. Part of the reason why people are so skeptic and, and so concerned about is this really God's word is because they're like, wait a second. So you mean to tell me that God just spoke to a person and, and, and they wrote it all down? You, a lot of us think that the Bible was written by just a small group of religious elite. It was this collusion. They came together and they're like, let's, let's write a book that gives us power over everybody. But here's what's interesting. The Bible is radically different from the two books I just mentioned. And let me show you why. Let me give you some facts from the Bible. The first thing we know about the Bible is that the Bible has 66 books. 
The second thing, and this is very important, and immediately distinguishes the Bible from any other religious book, it is written by 40 different authors. Now, why is that important? Because it's not just 40 different authors that were all sitting at a table together and they all like, hey, you write that part, you write that part, and you write that part. No, no. 40 different authors and the majority of them didn't know each other. Okay? But here's what's even more incredible. That these 40 different authors, if you look at them, it was people of different classes, of different vocations, of different backgrounds. So literally the Bible is written by wealthy people and poor people. The Bible is written by shepherds and warriors and poets and fishermen and tax collectors. Literally the whole spectrum and royalty. The Bible is written by people of every single walk of life, many of whom didn't know each other, never actually met. Okay? Look at this next part. The Bible, unlike those other two books, is written in three languages. Three languages. And if that's not enough, parts of the Bible, you look at different places where the Bible's written, the Bible was written in three different continents. Okay? And the most incredible part is that it was written over 1,500 years. Not 80 days, not 23 years, 1,500 years. And yet, they all have one central subject. You know how this is possible? The other two I gave you, a group of, God, a group of men could do that. But you know why this is possible? Because God was involved the whole way through. Only God can bring 40 different authors from totally different backgrounds in three different languages, written on three different continents over this amount of time. This is three times the age of our nation. Okay? And have one central subject throughout the entire thing. And you might be asking, well, what's the central subject? Well, you got to wait for the third point. Okay? You're not ready for it yet. You're not ready for it. So just settle down. Okay? Um, so... So that's what, what makes the Bible so different, okay? But the, but the other thing I want you to see is not just that the, the, the way the Bible was compiled, but one of the things that makes the Bible reliable is when you look at how many manuscripts we have of the New Testament, how many actual physical manuscripts we have of the New Testament. I want to show you a graph here that kind of explains to you just how significant this is, Okay? So let's take the writings of Plato, for example. According to scholars, Plato wrote roughly between 427 B.C. and 347 B.C., okay? But here's what's interesting. The earliest manuscript of Plato's writing that we have is 900 A.D. So follow with me here. That means that the gap between the original manuscript and the, the earliest one we have is 1,200 years. And you know how many copies we have of it? Seven. Okay. Let's go to Caesar's writings. Julius Caesar lived between 100 uh, BC and 44 BC. He wrote in, in that time period. And just like Plato's writing, the, the earliest manuscript that we have of Caesar is 900 AD. So it's about a thousand years bef between the original writing and the earliest manuscript that we have. And there's only about 10 copies of it. 
Then we look at Aristotle. Aristotle wrote in between the years 384 B.C. and 322 B.C. Aristotle's even later. The, the earliest copy we have of Aristotle's stuff uh, comes from 1100 A.D. That's 1400 years between the original writing and the earliest manuscript that we have. And we have about 49, which is better than these. 49 copies. Let's look at the New Testament. The New Testament was written between 40 A.D. and 100 A.D. So here's what's fascinating about the New Testament. Jesus died in 33 A.D. And within 70 years, the entire New Testament was done. Within 70 years, the entire New Testament was done. The reason why that's significant is because what that tells us is that many of the people who were reading these writings were alive when he died. So it's pretty hard to, to, to create and manufacture a lie when the people who were there are the ones reading what you wrote. Okay? The earliest manuscript that we have of the Bible, of the New Testament, is 130, 130 A.D. So last than 100 years, and roughly about 30 years. So not, not, a 12, not, not, 12, not, not uh, 1,200, not 1,000, not 1,400, roughly around 30 years before, between the original and the earliest manuscript that we have. And then I want you to see how many we have. We have 5,680-something, but I rounded down. 5,680-something manuscripts of the New Testament. And listen, I'm just talking to you about the Greek ones. If I include all the other, all the other languages that we have, it's closer to 24,000 copies. And you want to know the, the, the difference between, you would think, man, that's up 24,000 copies. That's a lot of copies. There's probably a lot of difference when you go from, play, you know, from language to language. The variation, the, 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 the difference between all those copies, those 24,000 copies, is 99.5%. That's how reliable they are. There's, a, there's, a less, there's half a percent difference between all those documents. And when you look at those differences, it's actually just typos and misspellings and things that someone you know, messed up as they were writing it down. They're actually not any, there's actually 100% when you look closely at the differences. And, and so what we see is that the, the Bible is the most supported book in human history. I'm not even quoting scripture here, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but, but before I came to know Jesus, I never woke up one morning thinking, man, did Caesar really exist? I don't know if Caesar was real. You know, I just, I'm really struggling this morning. Is Caesar a real person? Like, I really like Little Caesar's pizza. Like, is this a, is this a Ponzi scheme? Was this a, is this some conspiracy? What if, what if Little Caesar's not even a guy? Like, what if this whole thing is a lie? Have you ever woken up doubting the existence of Caesar? No. You have. And yet, we only have 10 documents that prove the dude existed. And yet, how often do people say, oh, but, but the Bible, though, not reliable at all. Right? You, you, how many philosophy teachers and religion teachers and secular colleges will quote these guys and then get to the New Testament and say, oh, but you can't trust the New Testament, though. When if this is the, if you look at the actual facts... It takes more faith to believe Caesar existed than, than Jesus existed. Okay? And so that's why this is so important. That's why this proof, I think, is such a valuable proof that we need to be aware of. But the other, the other thing I want you to see 
is how many times in the New Testament the, the concept of eyewitnesses is brought up. Look, what it's, look at these passages here. And every single one of these passages, I'm not going to read uh, all of them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just mention, the read the first one in a second. But in Luke 1, uh, 1 through 3, in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, in 2 Peter 1, 12 through 21, and in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, in all of these passages, the individuals who are writing bring up the concept of eyewitnesses. They want you to know that either they are eyewitnesses or they have interviewed eyewitnesses. Listen, if the Bible was just a fairy tale, if the Bible was just a myth, if the Bible was just a legend, these guys wouldn't care about eyewitnesses. But you see four different authors bringing up the concept of eyewitness testimony. Look what it says in Luke chapter 1. Luke says, he's writing to a, a wealthy man named Theophilus. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He says among us because he's a part of it, right? And he says, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. But what do you see that? Eyewitnesses. And then he says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write down an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with blind faith, is that what it says there? Blind faith? With certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay? So what we see is that the Bible is reliable not just because it says it is, but because it's proven to be reliable through, through documents and through eyewitness testimony. And you know what I would argue is probably the most compelling argument for the Bible being reliable? It's the prophecies concerning the Messiah. One of the things that the Bible talks about, you might, not have, you might have no idea what I'm talking about. One of the things that, that the Old Testament tells us again and again and again is that God is going to send a Messiah. And this Messiah is going to be the deliverer of God's people. It's going to be God in the flesh. He's going to dwell with his people. And he's going to deliver his people. So the Jews, essentially from Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, are looking for this deliverer, for this Messiah, who's going to come and deliver the people of God. Now, if you look at the entirety of the Old Testament, there are 333 prophecies concerning this Messiah. In other words, there are, it's a checklist of 333 things that an individual is going to have to check off if they were really the Son of God and the promised Messiah. Okay? So there was this mathematician, and what he did is he didn't take all 333. He just took eight of the 333, and he, he did the numbers. And for those of you who are numbers people, you're going to love this point, okay? He took eight, not, all, not 88, not 188. He took only eight of the 333 prophecies. And he says, what is the probability of one human being meeting just eight of the 333? And look what, look at what it says. Now, the mathematician is named Peter Stoner, so I know that he doesn't seem like a reliable source, but I promise the... Uh, High school was rough for him, but, but I promise he's a reliable source, okay? So Peter Stoner is the mathematician, and here's what he Peter Stoner calculated the probability of just eight messianic prophecies being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Just eight. Multiplying all these probabilities together produces a number, rounded off, of one to the 10th to the 20th. That's supposed to be a little 28. Uh, one to the 10th to the 28th power, Okay? 
Dividing this number by an estimate of the number of people who have lived since the time of these prophecies, about 88 billion, produces a probability of 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Or 1 in a lot of zeros. And for those of you who don't know how many zeros it is, he tells us that's 1 in 100 quadrillion. So follow with me here. In order for one individual to fulfill eight of the 333, the odds of one person fulfilling eight of them is 100 quadrillion. One in 100 quadrillion. quadrillion. Isn't that crazy? And yet Jesus Christ shows up and he fulfills not eight of them. He fulfills every single one of them. Specific ones too, guys. I, I, it's so specific that in Zechariah 11, it tells us that he's going to be betrayed by a friend for 30 shekels of silver. That's how specific it gets. Not 29.99, 30. Okay? Not 30 shekels of gold, silver. And that the, the, the money was then going to be used to buy a potter's field. Not beach property, a potter's field. That's how specific some of these prophecies are. And Jesus Christ fulfills every single one of them. So I would argue that the, the greatest argument for the reliability of the Bible is the fact that it predicts Jesus and then Jesus shows up and fulfills every last bit of it. Okay? So, let's go back to the points. We, we began this morning by looking at the claims of the Bible. Then we took some time to look at the proofs for the Bible. And I want to conclude uh, this morning by looking at the subject of the Bible. Now, I would argue that out of all the arguments, this last one is the most compelling argue, argument for the Bible being reliable. I would argue that this last one is the most compelling argument out of all three. The subject of the Bible, the theme of the Bible, the point of the Bible is the ultimate evidence that the Bible is reliable and it's ultimately the Word of God. Here's why. One of the things that people accuse the Bible of is the, God, the Bible is just man-created. It's just created by man. And because it's created by man, we shouldn't trust it. But here's how I know that the Bible is not created by man. The Bible is not created by man. The Bible is not man-created because the Bible is not man-centered. I'm, I'm going to say that again. The reason why I know that the Bible is not man-created is because the Bible is not man-centered. And here's why that's important. Because everything that's man-created is man-centered. It's the ultimate proof that something's man-created. If it's man-created, you better believe it's man-centered. What's beautiful about the Bible is that the Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about me. The Bible is about someone else. And that someone else isn't us. So if the Bible isn't about us, then why read it? Because everything has to be about us. Right? That, that, that's actually why marketing is so effective. 20 years ago, we were just talking about this as a leadership team uh, at, at WBC. 20 years ago, if, if a computer was being sold, all you needed to know was if it was a good computer or not. You needed to know the specs. You needed to know if it had good RAM or not, right? And that's what the commercials were about. Hey, this is a good computer. You should buy it. Nowadays, the only way you're going to buy an Apple, Apple will sell you something and never even actually shows you the product. It's just some girl walking through the city, you know, uh, uh, and it's all about, the, the whole commercial is about the girl. You don't even care what the specs are. You're like, hey, it's about me. It's about her. I'm going to buy it. 
Half Apple commercials, I don't even know what they're selling. I just know it's about me. That's how most marketing is today. Most advertising, most marketing is about you because that's what people do. That's what people prefer. But the Bible shows up and says, actually, it's not about you. It's actually not about you at all. The Bible is not about you. It's not about me. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. And you know what's fascinating? That, that all you got to do is read the Bible to figure that out. And, and here's what happens. When you look at Scripture in John chapter 20. So John in his gospel does this amazing job of presenting, of presenting Jesus as God. Then he gets to, towards the end of his, of, his, of his book. And in John chapter 20, John says, I have written these things. For the purpose of, so that as you read them, you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And what he does is not only does he summarize his book, but he's actually summarizing the entire Bible. Everything that was written in the Bible is so that you might get to the point where you realize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But it's not just what John says. Jesus himself says the same thing. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus resurrects from the dead. He's walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples who are so blind, don't even know it's him. And as they walk, it says that he unpacks for them, starting with Moses and the prophets, he unpacks them, the law and the prophets, he unpacks for them everything that the Bible had to say concerning him. The only scriptures they had back then were the Old Testament. Jesus takes the entire Old Testament and shows them how the Old Testament had to do with him. Matthew chapter 17 is even a, a better picture of it. In Matthew chapter 17, we find the transfiguration of Jesus. He takes three disciples up on a mountain. They fall asleep because they're always falling asleep. They wake up, and when they wake up, Jesus is transfigured. Literally, he's like the sun, it says, like bleach white, it says. They wake up, and here's what they see. They see Jesus, and he's talking to Moses and to Elijah. Peter is so dumb. That he sees these two dudes with Jesus and he's like, man, finally, Jesus must be special because these guys are here to, to affirm Jesus, to, to give him credibility. He's like, Jesus, this is great. You know what we could do? We can set up some tents up here. He was talking, he, he's thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Hey, we can set up some tabernacles, some tents up here and we can just all hang out. This is great. And almost immediately a storm comes over them, a cloud comes over them. And essentially it's God telling Peter to shut up because he has no idea what he's talking about. Because listen, they weren't there to give Jesus credibility. Jesus was there to give them credibility. See, the reason why it was Moses and the reason why it was Elijah is because Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. So both of them being there, it was literally a physical illustration that the law and the prophets point to Jesus. Not to you, to Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is arguing with the religious people. And he tells the religious people who the religious people were just like us. They read the Bible and all they saw was themselves. And Jesus says to the people in Matthew 5, he says, listen, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will discover eternal life. And yet the scriptures are, are, are pertain to me and yet you refuse to believe in me. Jesus says, you read the Bible and all you do is find yourself when really you should be finding me. And so Jesus himself says that the Bible is about him. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is about Jesus. And that's the greatest proof the Bible has. Look at what Tim Keller says about this. I have this quote here I want to read to you. Tim Keller, just to prove this point. It's a very well-known um, quote. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, 
has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. Jesus is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and looked and took the blow of justice we deserve. So like Jacob, we only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and to discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the new and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bed. bread. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is about Jesus, that's what we see. The Bible is not about you. Listen, the Bible is not about uh, 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 God, you know, the, 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 best of, the best of people working their way to God. The Bible is about the worst of people having God work his way down to them. That's what the Bible is. The, the, the Bible isn't, hey, if, if we try hard enough, we're going to get there. The Bible is you couldn't do enough, I had to come down to you. That's what the Bible tells us. So the reason why the Bible is the word of God is because the Bible isn't ultimately uh, about us working our way to God. But here's what the Bible is. The Bible is ultimately about God responding to our rebellion with a rescue, responding to our sin with salvation. That's what the Bible is about. It's not about you and it's not about me. God gave us the Bible because he gave us the book that we needed, not the book that we wanted. And God knew that what we needed was not steps. What we needed was a savior. What we needed was not a model. What we needed was mercy. What we needed was not application. What we needed was atonement. What we needed was not uh, moralism, which is self-sufficiency. What we needed was monergism, which is God-sufficiency. God gave you the book not that you wanted. He gave you the book that you needed. And so the question that we have sought to answer this morning is this. Is the Bible reliable? I would argue that it is reliable. And if the Bible is reliable, then here's what it means. It means that its words are reliable. It means that its content is reliable. And most importantly, it means that its Savior is reliable too. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come before you this morning, and God, we want to thank you that you are a reliable God who's given us a reliable word. You've sent your reliable son to provide a reliable salvation. Father, I pray for the people here this morning who have yet to believe in you. I pray for the people here this morning who have yet to, to take a step towards you. 
Listen, if you're sitting here this morning, I want everyone to keep your eyes bowed and your, your, eyes, your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I, I want to know this Jesus. I want to place my faith in this Jesus. I have a prayer here that I want you to read with me. Read it quietly in your heart. Just follow along with me, but read it quietly in your heart. It says, dear God, thank you for loving me and for sending your son to die for my sins. I want to turn away from my sinful life and receive Jesus Christ as my personal savior. And now, as your child, I turn my entire life over to you. Amen. If you're sitting here this morning and you've prayed that prayer, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. If you prayed that prayer, I would love for you to take the connect card that you received when you got here and let us know that you prayed that prayer. There's a bubble there. And put it in the offering plate as the offering plate goes by. Father, now I pray for the people who have just received you, people who have just taken this step. Please allow them to feel your, your affirmation, your love, your forgiveness. Allow them to understand that they've gone from being your enemies to being your children. Allow them to know that they have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And God, I pray now for the offering. I pray that you would take these tithes and offerings and you would use them for your honor and your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.